Tonight we're going to be looking at a, another church uh, out of Revelation chapter number 3, um, the church at Sardis. And uh, we're going to start in Revelation chapter number 3, uh, verse number 1. We have conquered chapter 1 and chapter 2, and uh, now we're moving on to chapter number 3. And so uh, chapter number 3, verse number 1, the Bible says this, And to the angel at the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful, I'm sorry, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I'm going to try not to overextend my voice. So if you'll turn me up just a little bit, uh, Brother Don. Um, Tonight, we are going to uh, look at the church of Sardis. This is, uh, as we now are traveling into Revelation chapter number 3, we are beginning to get to a stage in Revelation where uh, uh, words are being written that are misunderstood and uh, are misconstrued within um, the church world. And so, uh, we're going to look at one of those phrases tonight, the idea of God uh, not blotting their names out of the book of life. That is... In my estimation, one of the most misunderstood uh, verses in all of the Word of God. And so we'll get there. But you're going to see that as we now hit Revelation chapter number 3. And we get to Revelation chapter number 4. And we begin to talk about the rapture and all those kind of things. We're going to begin to see things uh, to uh, help us to better understand the Word of God. And maybe enlighten us a little bit. And uh, it may bring on discussion, which I would encourage. And uh, as you study at home... And we study together here. So right at the top of your outline, the church at Sardis is the fifth church to receive a letter from the Lord Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. Like the other six, this was an actual church at the time John wrote the book of Revelation. Number one in your outline, as it always has been, the city. The city. What about the city of Sardis? Sardis was the capital of ancient Lydia. Um, and was about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. Centuries before the time of Christ, it was politically, militarily, and economically one of the most important cities in Asia. So when we talk about Sardis, we are now talking about one of the most prominent cities uh, in Asia in a political, military, and economical way. Uh, when you look at today's society and you begin to break up countries... Um, as, uh, as the news does and as we do as individuals and you begin to talk about the military and you begin to talk about economics and you begin to talk about the politics. Uh, several of you sitting here tonight, many countries begin to work through your mind as you've been hearing about uh, uh, the military and, and, and the power that they have and the political power that countries have and the economic power that they have. And so that's what Sardis was. When people said Sardis' name, they immediately said, that is a place of power. And uh, so that's, that's where we're at tonight. And because of that, 
uh, uh, literally that power went to their head. And that power that they once had was like, hey, you know, everything that they lived for and everything that they had. As a matter of fact, their power was so great that people there were very well off. There was nobody in Sardis that was poor. Everybody there had everything that they could ever want. And they lived that way. They lived within their wealth. They, 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 they had everything that they had ever wanted. If they didn't have it, they could go get it. And uh, because of that, it began to cause a lot of problems in Sardis. Its prosperity was partially the result of its geographical location as the junction, and the next word is, of the five main trade routes. They were right there uh, in the middle of it all. They were right there at the junction of the five main trade routes, which is where you find Sardis. If you go back at the very beginning, if you still have your notes, to the very first lesson that I did, on the back of lesson number one, there's a map, and it maps out for you all the geographic locations. If you look at where Sardis is, Sardis is right there. They just kind of, it's at the, the, the peak of the trade routes. And so literally, uh, you know, we, I, I've often uh, kidded that when Jesus comes back, he's got to come through Atlanta first, because that just seemed like where all the planes have to come through and land, right? And you get a, you get a layover in Atlanta. When I, before I lived here, um, if I was flying anywhere, you could guarantee I had to hit Atlanta somewhere along the way. And uh, so, uh, and, and that was the same way it was there. Everybody had that, that had anything to do with the politics, anything that had to do with the economy, anything that had to do with wealth, had to stop through Sardis. Though it had retained its wealth, Sardis was no longer a famous and important city. And the reason is, is because of its wealth, the citizens of Sardis lived in luxury, which led to a moral decadence and decline. Sardis was once this powerful country, and because of the morality and because of the fact that they lived beyond anything that they could ever imagine, Sardis literally, excuse the terminology, uh, tanked. Uh, they, they just could not uh, uphold and keep this style of living. Uh, and, and you know what, that's the truth. I remember living in Michigan, and in Michigan... Uh, um, you know, they had the, the car companies, and, and everybody was living very well in Michigan. I mean, everybody had great jobs, and the problem with it was is that everybody was living on their paycheck still. You know, in, in the good times, they would live high, and the difficult times, they would live low and complain, and eventually, it all fell apart, and because of that, now, it, well, it's probably not the case anymore, but it, there came a time when you could walk into the streets of Michigan and buy a home for a dollar or for $500 and, and, and just move in because the economy had just crumbled around them because they did not plan. They did not prepare for the hard times. Such as it was with Sardis, there was no planning. They just, if they made it, they spent it. If they made it, they spent it. It was no, there was no reserve. There was nothing that they were doing in the midst of their wealth. And when it all crumbled underneath them, they crumbled too. And it went into a complete decline. In John's time, it was known as a wealthy and wicked city existing on past fame. That's the word, fame. It was existing on past fame. Apparently, the church at Sardis became like the city as well, um, and we'll see that later in our lesson. It was living on its past fame. Number two, the commendation. The commendation. What did God commend them for? Uh, verse number four, let's look at it. Chapter three, verse number four. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not 
defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I I love what it says. He says there are a few names. There are a few names. Do you remember whenever, um, whenever Sodom and Gomorrah... The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did, what did God tell Abraham? Do you remember? This is where you get to talk back. <laughs> he was going to destroy the city, right? And what did, what did Abraham beg God? To save it. He asked him for just a few. And God said, if you can find me a few, could Abraham find a few? No. Matter of fact, he couldn't find any. And so God destroyed it, such as it was with Sardis. And God had not completely destroyed Sardis, I believe, because there was still a few. There was still a few that God could commend for staying faithful and staying true. Listen to me tonight. If we've learned anything throughout already in the book of Revelation, there's one thing that I believe resonates throughout it all, and that is this, that we have to remain faithful. We have to remain faithful even though everything around us may be crumbling. Even though everything around us, even though everyone else is doing this and everyone else is doing that. It, that that's one thing that, that my children know. They, if they come home and say, hey dad, everyone's going. Or dad, everyone has. They have figured out if they come home and it starts like that, that's where it ends. Because I'll say, not Everybody. And then they'll say, yeah, everybody. And I'll say, okay, let's go over and take inventory then. Come on. And they'll be like, oh, no, no, no. It's just like maybe four or five, you know. Come to me and tell me you want something. I'm good with that. Come to me and tell me that I have to be like everyone else. I'm struggling. Are you following me? I mean, you have, some of you understand that, right? Such as it was, such as it is in our own Christian life. We look around us and we say, hey, listen, this idea of going to church or this idea of giving to God or this idea of staying faithful, uh, there's no, not many people doing that. So I think I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do that. And if we're not cautious and if we're not careful, it will begin to crumble around us. And we'll begin asking, why is all of this happening in my life? And it's because we've decided that things and the things that we do are more important than the God we serve. There are only a few in Sardis who had remained faithful. Our Lord describes them as those who have not defiled their garments. This is a very interesting uh, phrase. Uh, the word defiled simply means filthy, dirty, or polluted. And the truth is, is that the Lord desires, and our words are, clean and pure garments. He, he wants clean and pure garments. Well, what does that exactly mean? That they had not defiled their garments. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 gives us an example. It says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Why? Here's what it says. For the fine linen is what? The righteousness of the saints. Verse number 14 says, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon... White horses clothed in fine linen, and the fine linen was what? White and clean. White and clean. 
because the righteousness of a person um, is described as being fine linen, it is being clean. That is exactly what God desires from us as Christians, is to be arrayed in fine linen, to be people that are pure and to be people that are clean. Listen to me tonight. Now, if you don't get anything else out of what I'm going to talk to you about uh, tonight, I want you to get this, and I really want you to listen to me. God desires that we as Christians maintain purity and cleanness in our lives. Did you catch that? God desires that we live a pure and holy life. Listen, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to be very cautious in how I say it, but I'm just going to say it. You may think in your mind, nobody knows what I'm doing. The truth is, is that God knows what you are doing. You cannot hide from God. You cannot. God sees it. And God desires us to be clothed in white clean linen. In other words, to be righteous. Listen to me, because I really want you to get this, and and, and I think this is where we mess up. God never says in the word of God to be righteous before men. He says to be righteous before God. Anybody can put on the show. Anybody can be righteous for a couple hours. God wants people not to be righteous before men, but to be righteous before God. And that's where the cleanness comes from. That's where the purity comes from. Having undefiled garments means keeping one's character unspotted by the world. To those believers, our Lord promises, and they shall, look at this, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are what? Worthy. They are worthy. I don't know about you, but I I, kind of like that idea of being called worthy. What do you think? You know, for the Lord Jesus Christ to call us worthy. How do we do that? By keeping our garments undefiled, by keeping ourselves unspotted, uh, our character unspotted by the world. And he promises that we'll be able to walk with him in white, for they are worthy. To those who live righteously... The promise is they shall be clothed in white. Revelation 19.8 explains the white robes are symbolic of the righteousness of the saints. We read that just a moment ago. Not the righteousness of God. Thus, this clothing refers to a special, the next word is recognition, for those who have lived righteous lives. Now, I don't know how this is all going to work out, okay? But you have to excuse me, and I'm going to do this throughout our study in the book of Revelation. This is what they call leology. Let that sink in for a moment. I didn't say it was theology. I said it was leology, all right? I don't know how this is going to work, but this clothing refers to a special recognition. So I don't know how all this is going to work, but I can only imagine when we get to heaven, those that have lived pure and holy lives. We always like to talk about the crowns. Who's going to get the crown? Get the crown, get the crown, get the crown. Did you know there's other... There's other things that you can get as a Christian besides a crown. And crowns are very important. And and we should all strive to get the crowns. But I don't know about you, but I like the idea of wearing a white robe. I don't know what it's going to be like. I played baseball. So you'll have to excuse the analogy here for a moment. I played baseball. In baseball, 
you lettered. How many of you know what that means? All right. I went one day, and I heard about this lettering. And I went home, and I told my mom, I have to get a letter jacket. And she says, why do you need a letter jacket? I said, because I'm going to... Yeah, everybody has one, right? (coughs) Miss Diane stole my story. It's all over. I need a, no, no, you're fine. I need a letter jacket because I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get a letter at the end of the year for playing baseball. So I call the store. They tell me that letter jacket. Now, this is back in, uh, I know, I'm going to say this, it's a long time ago, right? Um, it was back in the early 90s. And they said it's going to be $175 because leather. So I got off the phone. I said, Mom, it's $175. Write the check. She said, write the check? I said, yeah. I said, you got checks, right? That means you got money in the bank. It works out. She turned to me, and this is what she said. She said, you play hard, you work hard, and you will get a jacket. I said, okay. So almost season was almost over. And it was time for our awards banquet. My mom came to me and she handed me a check for $175. And she said, go get that jacket. I said, all right. So I drove out there. They put that jacket on me. Now, this was like a ceremony for me. I never had a $175 jacket, first of all. This girl walks up and she puts it on me. I don't have to put it on myself. She puts it on me. It was like 95 degrees outside. (laughs) That jacket did not come off of me for like five weeks. I mean, it's like August and I'm wearing a leather jacket. I go to the ceremony. I got my jacket on. I go to the ceremony and they hand me a letter. And they hand me some other trophies and, and pins and all this kind of stuff. And man, I walked around school thinking I was it. You know, I've been lettered. And then I played my next year and I got another letter. And by the time it was all done, I had all the letters of the school. That was serious. I don't know what heaven's going to be like when it comes to this, but I can only imagine. God, this is theology, all right? God walking up with my white robe, if I deserve it putting it on man why why do we get that robe pastor for the righteousness of the saints this should be our motivation to live a life that is clean and holy before God you say pastor we're not sinless no we're not sinless we're flesh we're blood but we should strive in our sin capacity, in our sin-filled life, to be as far away from sin as we can possibly get so that we can be that much closer to God. So it was a, it was a huge commendation. Number three, the condemnation. This is where it gets tough. The condemnation. Chapter 3, verse number 1. and the last part of the verse, the Bible says this. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art 
dead. And then he says in chapter number, or excuse me, verse number, chapter 3, verse number 2, in the last part of the, the verse, For I have not found thy works perfect before God. He gives them some condemnation. It seems at one time the church at Sardis had the reputation of being a vibrant spiritual church. However, at the time that Christ sent this letter, he pronounced them spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Now, if you've been saved for any amount of time, if you are honest with me tonight, and, and, and I'm not going to tell on anybody else, because you wouldn't want me telling on you, so I'll tell on me. If I was honest tonight, I would say that there has been a time or two in my life where literally I've hit rock bottom spiritually. And I've hit rock bottom so hard that it felt like I was spiritually dead. Now, I'm the one that got myself there. It was me. I'm the one that put myself there. And that's where the church of Sardis was. That, that one time, do you remember, remember that moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your person? Said, you were alive, you were vibrant, you were a spiritual uh, uh, monument in your own life. It was like God is doing something amazing and spectacular. And then you go through life and it seems like that something happens. I call it the bucket of cold water. Some churches have a committee. I'm hoping we never get one here. <laughs> the cold water committee. You know, somebody gets fired up for God. They want to do everything for God. And somebody walks over and goes, hang on. And pours the cold water on them. Listen, uh, I, I, I caught the cold water moments where it just like, and then, and then another bucket of cold water and another bucket of cold water and another bucket of cold water. So literally we're almost fizzed out. And we're struggling spiritually. It's at that moment that we all have to make a decision. Whether or not we're going to get up and dry off. Or whether we're going to allow the cold buckets of water to take us over and literally eventually end up spiritually dead. The church of Sardis was a vibrant spiritual church at one time. And then God pronounced them spiritually dead. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the thought of literally God declaring it because of the life that they were living. To get a better idea of what the Lord means by the use of the word dead, in a spiritual sense, we need to look at his message to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter number 23. It'll be here up on the screen. Matthew chapter 23, it says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are likened to whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That is what God was saying about the church of Sardis. You are no longer a lighthouse. You are nothing more than a beautiful outward shade that people think that everything is okay, but on the inside, you are dead. You are dead because of the, the iniquity and because of the things, the uncleanness and the things that are happening inside of you. Can I tell you something tonight? You cannot live two lives. The Bible says a double-minded man is what? Unstable in all of his ways. You cannot live for God 
in one sense and live for yourself in the other sense. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. It cannot happen. You have to decide which one you are going to live. Because I'm telling you, if you teeter-totter on this idea of living right and spiritual and when everybody's looking and live this life of, of hypocrisy and iniquity when no one else is looking, it is going to eventually come out and bite you. It will happen. And we have to be very careful about that. And when that happens, can I tell you tonight, if you're living that kind of life, and I'm not trying to be hard or difficult, I'm just sharing with you the word of God. If you're living that kind of life, the life that says I'm this person in front of everybody else and I'm this person when I'm by myself, God says you are spiritually dead. You're dead. I pray all the time in my life, this is the honest truth, this is a prayer that I have at least two or three times a week in my own personal life. Lord, allow me to be the same person I am behind the pulpit that I am in the Walmart. Lord, allow me to be the same type of person that I am behind the pulpit as I am when I'm sitting in my office all by myself. Lord, allow me to be the same person as I stand in the pulpit as I am when I'm dealing with people one-on-one. Because I'm telling you, and, and I mean this with all my heart, I am just as much flesh as any other man in this room. I have the same temptations and the same, the same struggles that any person in this room would have. The, the decision has to lie within us. And certainly, I'm as far from perfect as possible. Dig a little bit. You'll find out. Maybe not. Don't dig. Um, but I'm serious. Are you with me? I'm just trying to be real with you. We just have to decide that we're going to live righteously as much as we possibly can and flee from sin and flee from temptation so that we do not find ourselves full of hypocrisy and iniquity where God declares us spiritually dead. It's very, be very cautious of that. The problem with the Christians at Sardis was not one of false doctrine like the believers at Thyatira or opposition like the believers at Smyrna. Instead, the Sardis church was living on its past reputation. It was living on its past reputation. Most people don't want to live on their past reputation. But in this scenario, they were living on their past reputation because their current reputation wasn't worth having. No matter where you're at in your life, you have to live in the present. You cannot live in the past. Their loyalty and service to Christ was all in the past. They were nothing more than a corpse that looked alive from the outside, but within was filled with hypocrisy and iniquity. Unfortunately, there are many churches today, like the church of Sardis, in major cities in this country, there are huge church buildings that were once nationally known for preaching the gospel, reaching the lost, and evangelizing the world. And today, they are nothing more than large monuments. Just large monuments of what used to be. No longer is the word of God preached and taught as the most important mission of the church. Listen. I, want to, I just want to funnel that down to our own personal lives. I sh I'm going to tell you a personal struggle of mine. I went to church all of my life. I was in church nine months before I was ever born. And then I was born. 
And I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, whatever. Always there. So were all of my friends. Everyone that I knew as a friend was there. And I remember growing up, getting into high school and going to camp. And we'd have these camp experiences, as I like to call them, these emo- emotional roller coasters of camp, which I think are somewhat of an injustice to a teenager. But they would, uh, it would just be this unbelievable high, and you'd come home, and you'd tell everybody about what you're going to do for God, and then you go back to school, right? And you went from this, it's like the scream machine at Six Flags, you know? And um, I remember graduating from high school, and I remember girl after girl and guy after guy say, we're going to this Bible college, we're going to this Bible, we're going to go do this. I'm going to serve God doing this. And then today I look and it breaks my heart. Because all of those dreams and all those aspirations were changed because of a moment in their life. I grew up in a large youth group. We had about 180 in our youth group. I can name five today that are still in church. I struggle with that. Let me tell you why. Because what happens is, if we're not cautious and careful, listen to what I'm about to say, and I really want you to get this. The investment into our young people is the wrong type of investment. I don't want my son, now my children know, they wake up on Sunday mornings, we're going to church. They wake up on, they they come home from school, they're going to church on Wednesday, they know all that. But I want to tell you something tonight, and please nobody get mad at me, and I I don't want a deacon's meeting after this, but (laughs) if none of my boys grow up to be preachers, you know I'm all right with that. I really am. Because I want my children to do what God wants them to do, not what dad wants them to do. It's the wrong type of investment. I, I, I want my children to have a childhood. I want them to have a, 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 a teenage life. And I think if we're not cautious what we've done, and I'm, I'm being very careful how I put this, but what we've done is that we, we begin to model our monument after our youth. And we begin to say, hey, look at, look at this monument. Look at how everything is supposed to be in life. And that's what they look at. But can I tell you that I have not met a young person that can't see through it. They can see right through it. They know the truth. They know what's happening. B, and if I could, if I could get anything to you tonight, it would be this. Just be real. Be real. And in that being real, do your very best to be righteous before God. If you were to ask my son, if you were to ask my son and I, has your dad ever failed? You know what he would tell you? Yes, I've watched him do it. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Because when he gets my age, I don't want him failing the same failures that I failed. 
Does that make sense? Don't put up a monument. Don't put up some kind of facade that says, well, this is who I am, and then behind closed doors, I'm something totally different. No. God wants people to just be who they are so that they can remain alive spiritually. I hope that made sense. Instead, these churches are nothing more than welfare stops, being more concerned with the social needs of people than with their spiritual needs. Many of these congregations appear to be spiritually alive, but under close examination, we find that they are spiritually dead. I've got to hurry. Our Lord also condemns the Sardis church by saying, for I have not found, or excuse me, for I have not found thy, or that's supposed to say thy, thy works perfect before God. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse number 2. Each of the previous four churches we have studied had some good works for which Christ commends them as a whole. But this church had nothing. Can you imagine that? They had nothing for which it could be praised collectively. Some of the works at Sardis may have been impressive to people, but they were not impressive to God. The Bible says to serve the Lord, not as men pleasers, but as God pleasers. If we're just doing it to please men, if we're just doing it to put on a show, God is not interested. God is not impressed with that. And this church had nothing for which it could be praised collectively for. Number four, the command. The command. What did God command them to do? It appears that some of the believers in the church were barely hanging on. The Lord describes them as ready to die. Yet the situation was not totally hopeless if steps were taken to strengthen the things which remain. That's what he tells them to do in chapter, uh, verse number two, and verse number three. Strengthen the things which remain. The way to do this strengthening was, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. This is very important in all of our lives. They were to remember two things. They were to remember the salvation that they had received and the things that they had heard. Whenever things get difficult in our lives, it feels like everyone's going against the grain and I need to stand up for what is right. The two things that I can be uh, assured of is my salvation and the things that I've been taught. And that's what God commanded them to do. To just remember their salvation and remember the things that they had heard. The believers at Sardis were to remember and repent. Only in remembering how things used to be could they realize their present condition and rekindle, that's the word, their spiritual vitality. Rekindle their spiritual vitality. Unless the church of Sardis repents, Christ says, I will come on thee as a thief. This is a very interesting statement. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. This statement is actually um, very close to what the Bible talks about in the book of John. That Jesus will come as what? A thief in the night. When nobody knows the day or the night or the hour. If you correlate these two verses in the Greek, they do not have the same Greek connotation. And so therefore, we do not believe that it has to do with the second coming. Um, as the thief means by surprise, just Sardis had been defeated by Cyrus a long time before. Coming as a thief probably does not refer to the second coming, but rather to Christ coming against them in judgment is the word, in judgment. Every night I put my children in bed, and uh, they go, my, my two youngest ones, I put them in bed, they sleep in the same room. And uh, I'll tell them when I lay them down, I'll say, no talking, right, and go to sleep. 
I'm going to record myself saying that so that I don't have to say it every night. No, uh, lay down and go to sleep. Well, one night this happened, and uh, they were just very hyper. I, something was happening the next day. Grandma was coming, or we were going somewhere, and you know how that is. Nobody's going to sleep the night before that, all right? So it's like 10 o'clock at night, and I'm back down the hallway. you got to go to sleep. If you don't go to sleep, we can't go, or Grandma's not coming, or something. I don't know what it was, and, and you got to go to sleep. So I go back, and I sit down in the recliner. And a few minutes later, they start talking again. This was the mo- this is one of those parenting moments that was just classic. I got up, and I walked quietly as I could down the hallway. And I got into the room, and my little Matt Naya is standing on Samuel's bed. And Samuel is sitting up in the bed, and they're playing tackle football. Now, wait a minute. It gets better. I walked around the corner, and I flipped the light on. And, of course, Matt and I went, (laughs) And this is what Samuel said. Well, I said, you boys are supposed to be laying down and going night-night. And Samuel looked at me, and he said, well, you don't tell us when you're coming. (laughs) Just as serious as it could be. You didn't tell us when you were coming. Now, as much as I wanted them to be in trouble, have you ever tried to discipline your child while you're, while you're laughing? It's not easy, all right? But, you know, it's the same way with the Lord, all right? Judgment, if we're doing things that are wrong, God's going to bring judgment upon us if we're his children. He's going to discipline us. He is going to correct us. Maybe that's a better word. He's going to correct us. And we don't know when it's going to happen. (coughs) Excuse me. But we have to be ready for it. We have to be prepared. And Jesus was saying to them, if you do not repent, I will come to you and bring judgment. Number five, and I'm done. The comfort. The comfort. Since we've already discussed what it means to be clothed in white raiment, and you'll see that again in uh, verse number 5 and 6, you'll see, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And we've talked about what that means, the righteousness of God. Um, Let's move on to our Lord's second word of comfort. He says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 5, in the B part of the verse, that I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Um, I was going to, I, I, a few weeks ago, it's probably been a couple of months ago now, uh, I was preaching a message one Sunday morning and I began to um, talk just for a few moments about the idea of a child that has not reached the age of accountability and where they will go if they were to pass uh, before they reach the age of accountability, such as a miscarriage, um, such as um, SIDS, such as a child that uh, dies unexpectedly, such as a child that uh, may be 24, 25 years old but never reaches um, the capacity um, within their mind to be able to understand salvation. Uh, what happens to those children or those that have the, the mental impairment in their life? And um, I, I'm going to tell a short story because I've got to be done. 
Um, th- this was something that was very dear to me in my heart. Um, I grew up all my life in church, and never once did I heard anyone preach on the subject of what happens to their children if something like that happens. Between Gideon and Samuel, many of you know, we had three miscarriages and a very difficult time in our life. And if you've experienced that, you know what that's like. And, um, or if you've lost a child, you know what that's like. And um, I struggle with the fact of, you know, just like anyone has to come to a realization and a, and a, and a study of their own about, you know, we, we always have heard life begins at conception and all those kind of things. But, you know, what if you don't see the child and all that kind of stuff? And so I'm just trying to put this all together. And uh, I began a study on my own. It took me a year and a half of studying the subject of what happens to children that meet the Lord Jesus Christ before they have a full understanding of the truth of, of, of the gospel. And you say, Pastor, that's easy. They go to heaven. Let me ask you this question. How many tonight, if somebody walked to you, said to you, what happens to children, and you looked back at them and said they go to heaven, how many of you could show them why? Yeah, I couldn't raise my hand either. Year and a half, I began to study. This is only one small portion of it. Maybe one day I'll, I'll share with you uh, from the pulpit what God has shown me. But it's amazing as you begin to study. It actually starts with David. You know, David lost a child. Do you remember that? Because of his sin with Bathsheba. And David said in the book of Samuel, as he was rejoicing, as a matter of fact, they were having a party. And people were like, why are you rejoicing over the loss of your son? I, I don't really understand this. And David said this. He said, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. And we believe that David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible says that. And so I don't know about you, but I believe David's going to be in heaven. So if the child can't come to him and David can go to the child, where else would it be? Heaven. Well, here's the other, one of the other passages of scripture that really backs it up. He says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. This is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. It is not a threat to the unfaithful. I just want you to get this. It is not a threat to the unfaithful, but a word of comfort to the faithful. A word of comfort to the faithful. To make the continuance of our salvation dependent upon good works would undermine the entire purpose of salvation by grace and would also contradict other scriptures in the word of God. So our our continuance of salvation is not dependent upon our good works. A possible explanation of this statement, and and I believe that it's not possible, I believe it's true, but I just, uh, for sake of argument, uh, put that adjective in there. A possible explanation of the statement may be seen in the spiritual security of infants and innocent young children who have not reached the age of accountability. The Bible says right here in our verse, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Does it say that? Okay, what does that mean? It was already there. If we believe that life begins at conception, then we have to believe that every name at conception is in the book of life. We have to believe that. So, what happens to those names? How do they get blotted out? Is there a way for a name to be blotted out? Well, the book of life, as the name clearly implies, and you can, we'll study the book of life more, contains the names of all who have had the blessing of life. In other words, all who have ever been conceived in the womb have their names written in the book of life. 
Therefore, when a child dies before reaching the age of accountability, the age of recognizing he or she is a sinner, they will go to heaven. Why? Because their names are written in the book of life. Now, I've had somebody come to me uh, during while I was studying this and say to me, well, if they die before they hear the gospel, their name is blotted out of the book of life. And I said to them, when you can show me that in the Bible, I'll believe you. And they could not do it. There is only one way for your name to be blotted out of the book of life. Only one. And the way that it's blotted out is when you take your last breath. If you have reached the age of accountability and you understand that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And you rejected Christ. When you die is when your name is blotted out. It does not get blotted out before then. It gets blotted out when you pass. Why? Because it has to be irrevocably blocked out. However, here's where I'm going. i got to hurry. When a child comes to the point in life when he or she is conscious of being a sinner and then continues in sin until death without repenting, his or her name is finally and irrevocably blotted out of the book of life. That's the only way it can happen. It's the only way it can happen. It is the unforgivable or imparnable sin is the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm done. The third word of comfort come from our Lord is, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When you publicly confess your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is the guarantee of being confessed before the Father. Christ ends his letter to Sardis with the same exhortation he has given to all the other churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So here's the question. Did we hear the message? Is there any questions tonight? I I know we're a little bit over, but is there any questions? I, I think that what we have to understand is that in every scenario in our life, whatever we're facing, comfort is found in the Word of God. It's there. We just have to go get it. We have to claim that comfort. We have to go research where that comfort is. Because the comfort is there in the word of God. And we can understand it and we can know it. So when someone loses a child and they're distraught and and they're wondering what's going on and what's happening and what is God doing? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that we can find hope and we can find safety and rest in the fact that if they have not reached the age of accountability... Uh, they will find themselves in heaven. And it, it took me a year and a half, and I, I gave it to you in five minutes, and I understand that. It took me a year and a half of study for me personally. It was my wife and I, we studied it together, to get peace about this. And, and really, I understand that until you probably experience it personally, you, you don't get it. But for us, it was a personal thing. And so whatever you're facing, this is what I would say to that. I would say it may take some time. It may take some effort. It may take some long, hard study. And I'll be honest with you. Sometimes my wife and I were up all hours of the night because we'd finally feel like we broke the case a little bit and, 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 and cracked the safe a little bit to get a little bit more answers and a little bit more understanding. And it may take that. But I promise you, within the Word of God, is comfort for anything that you're facing. Not only comfort, direction. Not only direction, hope. 
Anything else tonight? Thank you so much for being here. I apologize for my voice. Um, it's that time of year, though. Woo-hoo. And um, so uh, let's pray together, and uh, we'll be on our way. Father, we love you. Thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the hope that it brings. Lord, we love you. Give us a great week. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget, if you want to get tickets, you can uh, grab a form, uh, fill those out. And tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, we're going to stuff the bags for Trunk or Treat. Have a wonderful night.